Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za And Pastor Lalo has asked me to come here to Heritage Baptist Church in order to teach from the scriptures on the subjects of marriage and singleness and parenting. Now remember, regardless of your current state, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you have children or you presently have no children, regardless of your current state, all of the Bible's teachings are relevant and profitable to you. If you are single, one day you may be married. And if you presently have no children, one day you may have children. So all that you hear this night and during this conference is relevant to each and every one of you, regardless of your state. The Protestant reformer of the 16th century, Martin Luther, wrote, and here I quote Martin Luther, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the Word of God, except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all battle fronts besides is mere flight and disgrace, if the soldier flinches at that one point. That's the end of the quote. So do you see what Martin Luther was saying? There are times in church history, such as today, when certain biblical truths are being attacked and we need to be faithful to God and his word and to people at that point. And we live in a time when the Bible's teachings regarding the roles of men and women, regarding marriage, regarding the roles of husbands and wives, regarding the family is being assaulted, undermined, and denigrated on every hand. That's true in America. I suspect it's true here in South Africa. And therefore, we need to understand the Bible's teachings. We need to then proclaim the Bible's teachings. And of course, we need to implement the Bible's teachings in our own lives. It's one thing to hear the Bible, to say you believe the Bible. It's another thing to live out the Bible. And to live out the Bible, you need the indwelling Holy Spirit. You need to be joined in saving faith to Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight and you're not genuinely a Christian, born again by the Spirit of God, you need to cry out to God through Christ and ask for him even now, this very night, to deliver you from your sins. Turn from your sins, turn to Jesus Christ. So now as we begin this conference, by way of introduction, I want to briefly address several important foundational truths so that we're all on the same page. 
And these truths are expressed in several propositions or presuppositions, either way. Well, what is a presupposition? It is something that is tacitly assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument. And so you must understand what my presuppositions are as we embark on these studies from the Bible. And furthermore, I would urge each one of you tonight to make my presuppositions your presuppositions because I believe what I'm saying is indeed rooted in the scriptures. So now I'm going to mention these very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. The first presupposition is this. The Bible is the word of the living God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, a scripture familiar to probably many of you, we read, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all of the Bible passages, they are indeed the word of the living God. Second presupposition, because the Bible is the word of God, the Bible is timeless and therefore transcultural. In Matthew 28, where we read the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, we read there in Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now stop and think about that. If the word of God was only for one nation or one culture or one ethnic group, why would Jesus say go to all the nations? But that's what he said. And then in verse 28, he told his disciples, excuse me, verse 20, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ was not short-sighted when he spoke those words to his disciples. And they're true today. All of the scripture is the word of God, and it is timeless and therefore transcultural. It is relevant in America. It is relevant in South Africa. It is relevant no matter where you go on this earth. The third presupposition is this. Because the Bible is the word of God, the Bible is sufficient for all matters of life and faith. The scriptures are perfect and complete, and they're able to achieve the purposes of redemptive revelation individually and corporately. They are relevant for all of us. We do not need new revelations from God. And indeed, God does not give new revelations because we have the Bibles. We do not need to shelve our Bibles. We do not need to turn on our computers, go on the Internet and look up on some website or blog what the latest expert is saying about marriage or about femininity or masculinity. We need to turn to our Bibles. Now, let me qualify. I'm not saying that you cannot read good Christian books about marriage, about the roles of men and women. I'm not saying you can't go to the Internet and search things out. But you need to remember that ultimately you have to return to the word of God. It is sufficient for all matters of life and faith.
We need to do what the Lord Jesus Christ did repeatedly when he was here on earth. He always turned to the scriptures. He frequently said to people around him, it is written. And then he would quote the scriptures of the Old Testament. Or he would say to people, have you not read? You are showing ignorance. Have you not read? what God has revealed in the scriptures. You see, we need to do that. We should not be embarrassed in this high-tech age to turn to the Bible. We should not be apologetic. We should not be embarrassed to turn to the scriptures. So, dear brethren, those are my brief presuppositions for us for this conference. But now I would like to begin a theology of marriage, its foundation. To understand marriage biblically, we must study it in the light of creation, the fall, the fall into sin, and redemption. Those are the three main categories which we should use from the Bible to study this matter of marriage. So please turn to Genesis in your Bible, whether a paper Bible or a Bible on your mobile phone. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And now turn to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 verse 7. And Jehovah God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And now drop down to verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 verse 21. And Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which Jehovah God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there we stop our reading of God's word. Before I begin, just let me say again, this is history, this is not myth, this is fact, this is not fiction, what we have just read. So I'd like you to see, first of all, from these passages, identity distinctions are revealed in the creation of sexuality. Man was not created androgynous or asexual or binary, one of the current terms that's used. That is, as a creature, he is not someone who is both male and female, But a simple reading of Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that 
God created a man and God created a woman. He made them sexual. First of all, God made a sexual man, a male. God then made a helper corresponding to man's need. And that helper has a distinct identity from man. The helper corresponding to man's need is not an animal. It's not a bird or any other creature. A woman was designed and created by God to be the helper suitable to man. And so we learn from these passages that God is the designer and creator of human sexuality. And thus, he is the designer and creator of the gift of sexual procreation and sexual pleasures for a husband and a wife. Now, there are some practical lessons right away here. Sexual distinctions are not bad. Sexual distinctions are not evil. They should not be regarded as annoyances, as realities that should be denied or twisted or confused or suppressed or obliterated. To deny, to confuse, to seek to destroy these God-designed and God-created distinctions is to overthrow God's created order. And God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order. Men are not to look or act like women. Now, 20 years ago, that statement probably would have been absurd to make in public. But it's not absurd to make that statement today. Men are not to look or act like women. And women are not to look and act like men. Why? Because God has made them to be distinct in their identities as male and female. And furthermore, when God's gift of sexuality is enjoyed within the marriage covenant between a husband and his wife, according to the teachings and the principles of God's word, God is glorified. The teachings of Genesis 1 and 2, portions of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and other scriptures reveal this truth which I've just spoken. And therefore, sexual relations between a husband and a wife that are in accordance with the teachings of the Bible are not to be viewed as dirty or as animalistic or as disgusting, no. They are God's design, God's creation, and we are to receive them as God tells us in the Bible. So identity distinctions are revealed in the creation of sexuality. But secondly, from these histories in Genesis, identity distinctions are revealed in the method of creation. God formed the man from the dust of the ground, while the woman was formed, not from the dust of the ground, but from Adam's rib taken out of the man. And again, this is not fiction. This is not myth. This is historical reality. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. The woman, one commentator wrote, was created not of the dust of the earth, but from a rib of Adam. 
because she was formed for an inseparable unity and fellowship of life with the man. And the method of her creation was to lay in part the actual foundation for the moral ordinance of marriage. You see, the woman was not made out of the man's head so that she could be above him. And the woman was not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by her husband, but taken out of his side, under his arm, to be protected and near to his heart to be beloved. With all those words, I got those from Matthew Henry, the English commentator. Man and woman were not created in the same manner. That's obvious. And that was not an accident. The creation of sexuality and of the woman specifically was not an afterthought by God. God created man and woman differently because he purposed that they would be distinct in their identities as human beings. And because woman was created from the man, her life is intended to be bound up in the life of the man. So at creation, before the fall into sin, the woman was created distinctly and intended to be bound up in the life of the man. Her life was not intended to be separated from the life of her husband. In 1 Corinthians 11, and you may wish to turn there to just see this with your own eyes as well. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 8, we see these truths reiterated by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. First Corinthians 11 and verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So you see, after the fall into sin, all the way into the New Testament era, the Apostle Paul is really underscoring what we see in the creation account before the fall into sin. The method of creation by God reveals clearly that man is to be the head of his wife because man was not made for the sake of the woman, but the woman was made for the sake of the man. The man was created to be the loving head of his wife, and the woman was created to be the loving helper of her husband. The reversal of this God-ordained order brought and still brings disorder. You change God's order around, you bring disorder, discord, distress, and evil into the marriage relationship. So the identity distinctions are revealed in the method of creation. But thirdly now, identity distinctions are revealed in the order of creating man and woman. Because man was created first, we are to understand that there is a distinct order or hierarchy in God's design and plan for men and women and for husbands and wives. The fact that this created order, which is revealed in Genesis, 
is theologically and practically significant is underscored by the Apostle Paul. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. The order of creating man and woman. It's theologically and practically significant. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection. But I permit not a woman to teach, nor to have dominion over a man, but to be in quietness. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So you see what the Apostle Paul is writing here, what he wrote here. He says in verse 13, here's the reason that in the church, women are not to usurp the authority of men. Women are not to teach men in the church Women are not to dominate over men in the church. And the reason Paul writes here, it's because of the order of creation. This is not male chauvinism. This is not oppression of the female sex. This is following what God, the creator, has revealed to us here in the scriptures. So we shouldn't take the world's thinking and bring it into our minds and our hearts. We need to think according to God's word. Man has a God-given authority over the woman, not the woman over the man. And in the first Timothy passage, Paul is focused upon the life of the church. But using what is called the analogy of scripture, that historic reality of the order of creation also has practical application to order in the home, in the family. The wife is not to have dominion over her husband in the home. When a woman dominates a man, whether in the church or in the home, she steps out of her proper God-given place which is contrary to her distinctive identity as a woman. And Paul says the proof of this is rooted in the order of creation. But there are some practical lessons here as well. The fact that the man was created first does not give a husband. All husbands, I want you to hear this, or men who hope to be husbands, The fact that the man was created first does not give a husband any justification to be a tyrant in the home. It doesn't give him any grounds to be oppressive or arrogant in the home with his wife and his family. Man is not morally better than the woman. The woman is not, hear me now ladies, The woman is not a second-rate creature. The woman's not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. No. She is his helper, and she is in a position and role of subordination, and she was created in the image of God, even as the man. But let's suppose for a moment that even if 
the woman, the wife, were a second-rate creature, which she is not. But if she was, how does that status justify any husband to treat his wife with sinful behavior and sinful speech? It doesn't. But she's not a second-class citizen. Rather, the man being created first places weighty responsibility upon the husband. First of all, to love his wife. And we know from the New Testament, even as Jesus Christ loves the church. So if you are a husband here tonight, you need to remember, you have a very weighty responsibility given to you by the living God through his word, and it is to love your wife. And you're also to lead your wife. You're never to abuse your wife. You're never to neglect your wife. The husband is to love and lead his wife with the scriptures as a prophet in the home. And so I ask all of you husbands here this very night, do you have with your wife or your wife and children daily or nightly family worship? where you open up the Bible, again, whether paper, Bible, or on the phone, and with your wife or with your wife and children, you're reading from the Word of God, and you, as the leader in the home, are leading your wife and your children according to the Scriptures, being, as it were, a prophet, prophet with a small p, using the Word of God in the home. That is what you are to do. Are you praying for your wife? Do you pray with your wife, but do you also pray for your wife when you're all alone? You are to be a priest in your home, bringing your wife and all of her needs to God through Jesus Christ. And you are to rule your wife and your family as Christ rules in the church. So you have no grounds to be oppressive to your wife in the home because of the order of creation. But a second lesson, we must understand that the woman being created second and as the helper to her husband does not mean that she is to be silent and never communicate to her husband. That's wrong understanding. And I can prove that from the Bible. Christian wives should be students of the Bible. This may sound shocking, I hope not, but Christian wives should be theologians. A wife may at times understand scripture and its applications to their marriage and life when the husband is not yet seeing the issue. Now, you as a husband, if that happens in your marriage, you might think, well, you know, who is she to talk to me that way? That should not be the way you think. You should say, I thank God that my wife sees this issue theologically, practically from the Bible, and I missed it. Because of sin and remaining sin, that can happen. So you're not to be proud, arrogant. You're to be grateful to God that your wife is using her mind and her heart to study the Word of God and to bring some biblical truth to you as a husband. Now, she is to use her God-given intellectual capacities 
and communicate with her husband in a proper, godly, Christ-honoring fashion. She's not to be proud herself. She's not to be obnoxious. She's to choose the right time to speak to her husband. She's not to put him down and embarrass him in front of other people. Wisdom is needed, but grace and courage is needed by the wife to speak to her husband. Patrick Fairbairn, a Scottish theologian who died in 1874, he wrote the following regarding 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and following, and its implications. So listen to this man from that time period. Woman does not lose her rational power of thought and responsibility by abiding in the place assigned her by the gospel. And she also has a right to prove all things, only in a manner suited to her position, in order that she may hold fast that which is good and reject what is not good. Turn in your Bibles now to Genesis 21. Genesis 21 and verse 9. Genesis 21 and verse 9. Here we see the words of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Genesis 21, verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Verse 10. Therefore she, Sarah, said unto Abraham, Cast out this handmaid and her son, for the son of this handmaid shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight on account of his son, his son Ishmael. Verse 12, And God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in your sight because of the lad and because of your handmaid. In all that Sarah says unto you, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall your seed be called. And there we stop our reading. You see, here's a classic, wonderful illustration where godly Sarah spoke up to her husband Abraham. She could see something spiritually, practically, theologically that Abraham missed. And I think, this is my own opinion, Abraham missed it because his affections for Ishmael, his son, clouded his judgment about this whole situation. But Sarah's judgment was not clouded. And you see, she spoke up properly to Abraham. And God then says to Abraham, your wife is correct on this matter. Do as your wife said. This was not Sarah now being insubmissive. This was not overthrowing the order of God. This is an example where a godly wife speaks truth to her godly husband in order for him to see and understand something that God has helped her to see and understand that he has not yet seen and understood. So brethren, men and women, 
We need to understand that the woman being created second and as the helper to her husband does not mean that she is to be silent and not communicate to her husband. But a third lesson is this. It is clear from the creation account, as well as from numerous other scriptures, that God created the woman to be the helper to her husband. In creating the woman second, in creating the woman from the rib of Adam, in creating the woman to be the helper to her husband, God has purposed that the wife must also respectfully and lovingly submit to her God-given husband in all things sin accepted. So, dear wives, as tough as that is at times, even with a godly husband, and I know this because my dear godly wife says to me that I at times am tough, and she has to submit to me, not in matters of sin, not in matters of violation of the word of God, but she's told me, you know, honey, it's not always easy to submit to you willingly, cheerfully, wholeheartedly. But that's what true submission is. It's submitting to your husband willingly, cheerfully, wholeheartedly. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. First Peter 3, verse 5, For after this manner, before time, the holy women also who hoped in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose children you now are, if you do well, and are not put in fear by any terror. You see, the holy women of old, Peter writes, they clothed themselves, yes, with clothing, of course. And he tells us in his letter, we're not to be concerned, women are not to be overly concerned with their beauty, the fixing of their hair, the jewels and all that. But rather, as Peter says here in verse 5, you are to adorn yourself, clothe yourself with this grace of being in subjection to your own husband. And then he gives this example of Sarah obeying Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, we're not going to turn to the historical passage in Genesis, which Peter is referring to. But you can do that on your own time. But I will tell you the context. When Sarah called Abraham Lord... It was when the angels had visited Abraham and said, you will have a son. And Sarah was in the tent and she overheard this from the angels and she laughed. And then the angels said, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah lied. I didn't laugh. She sinned. She lied. She said she didn't laugh, but she had. And then she said, Shall my Lord, referring to her husband Abraham, have pleasure being the age he is? Shall we really have a child? 
You see, what did God the Holy Spirit through Peter the Apostle highlight? Not Sarah's sin of lying, but Sarah's respect of her husband Abraham calling him Lord. She clearly wasn't calling him Lord for the first time on that occasion. She wasn't calling him Lord in some artificial way. She was showing her love, her subjection, her respect for her husband Abraham. And that is what wives are to do to this very day. But a fourth lesson here to the unmarried women. You may be asking the question, how does this apply to me? I said at the outset, you need to remember one day you may be married. And if God withholds a husband from you, knowing these Bible truths, you can also instruct others when you become an older woman and there's a young woman married now, newly married, you can help her to understand her role as a Christian wife because you have the Bible as well. But you see, you should not view yourself again as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of Christ because you're unmarried. Please don't think that way. If you're not married, don't view yourself as somehow deficient, defective, a second-class citizen. You can serve as a godly helper in other spheres of life, which the Lord providentially places you into, such as in the church. You can be a godly helper in many spheres of life, so don't rule that out for yourself if you're unmarried. Well, a last lesson here in this section, because these identity distinctions and roles for men and women, husbands and wives, were designed and created and ordained by God, again, they are timeless truths they are transcultural. They are relevant for every single person in this auditorium. It doesn't matter what your background is. It is the Word of God. But now let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2 in our Bibles, where we behold the first marriage, Genesis 2 and verse 18. Genesis 2 and verse 18. And Jehovah God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help corresponding to him. And out of the ground Jehovah God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found a helper corresponding to him. And Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in the place of it, and the rib which Jehovah God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And there we stop our reading. Notice from this passage, first of all, the need identified in Genesis 2 and verse 18. The Lord God assessed man's state of singleness and determined that it was not good for the man to be alone. And again, this is not an afterthought on God's part. It's a bit of a mystery to wrap your brain around it, but it's not like this was an accident. We could discuss that separately. Man was created perfect and sinless, but man required a helper. Adam required a helper who corresponded to him, who was suitable both to his nature and his needs, a second self, as it were. Nothing else in the creation could accomplish this. You see, that's why we're told all of the animals, all of the birds, they were all named by Adam. None of them were appropriate for Adam. Man required a companion, someone to stand continually before him, someone to converse with him, someone always there to be ready to succor and serve, someone to comfort him. Man required a wife to be all these things and to enable him to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so from this history in Genesis, which God has revealed to us, it is clear that man was created by God to be a social creature. Men were not created to be antisocial, to be hermits. Prior to the fall, man needed a helper, a companion, a wife. Because sin has impacted every aspect of our humanity and society, not all men, not all women marry. And we must understand that it is, it is not sinful to be unmarried as a man or a woman. It's not sinful. It is the fall that has introduced that reality. We must understand also from the creation account that prior to the fall into sin, God purposed that men would marry because it is not good for the man to be alone. And if that was true in a state of sinlessness, in a world unaffected by sin, unaffected by the curse of God because of sin, how much more is it true today that it is not good for a man to be alone? Should God ordain in this fallen world that a man and woman marry, then together they are to cultivate a holy, H-O-L-Y, a holy, loving, productive, and peaceful relationship as husband and wife under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Word. So the need was identified in Genesis 2.18, but secondly, the need is met. We see that in this passage, verse 18, verses 21 to 22. God created the woman to be the perfect helper and companion to the man. She was created to respond to the needs of her husband. 
his spiritual needs, his intellectual needs, his emotional needs, his psychological needs, his physical needs, his practical needs. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, this sounds kind of selfish. I was created as a woman to be a wife, and it's all about him. Well, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking wrongly. Change your thinking and see, you as a wife under God have an enormous privilege to be the instrument under God to help your husband to arrive in heaven safe at last. That is a privilege. It is a responsibility. It is a privilege. Don't look at this in a negative way. It does not mean what I've just said. Does not mean that the husband in the marriage, in the family, is to be what in America we call a couch potato. I should have checked to see whether you use that phrase here. (laughs) Well, I prayed that God would be merciful to us and that we wouldn't have load shedding, but the Lord knows better. Is it okay for me to continue, Pastor Lalo? Yes? Can everyone hear me okay? So do you use that phrase couch potato in South Africa? (laughs) How about King Tut? (laughs) So all that I have said, all that God reveals here, this does not mean that the husband is to be a couch potato, a lazy man who is waited on hand and foot by his wife, whom he looks at as though she's almost a slave. That's wrong. That's sinful. But we must not lose sight of the fact that woman was created by God in order to meet specific needs in the man, her husband. Needs which could not be met by any other creature. And therefore, the life of a married woman is ordained by God to be oriented toward her husband. Now, again, you might have a lot of questions flooding into your mind. Well, can I as a wife work outside the home? Or what does it mean for this? Or what about my university education? I'm married. There's lots of questions. They can be dealt with in a Q&A session. But those questions do not change the reality that God ordained that the wife is to have her mind, her heart, her life oriented toward her husband being his God-given helper. And with this provision of the woman, we behold the marvelous example of God the Creator acting as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, the Provider. The provision of a wife for the man is a manifestation of the grace of God. If you are a husband here tonight and you have a wife, you need to regularly think about that truth, that God has graciously given you that woman to be your helper. You need to thank God. I would say you should do that daily, frequently. 
Thank God that he gave you out of the goodness of God's heart, out of the love of his own heart, a wife. And we see that truth given to us in Proverbs 18, 22. You don't need to turn there. Whoso finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So we need to see that when a husband has a wife, it is God, Jehovah Jireh, providing graciously for him. And he is also graciously providing for the wife because her husband is now her guide and protector under God. But a second lesson here, God did not create another man to be the man's helper. And again, 25 years ago, probably one would not needed to say this. Men may indeed have legitimate close friendships with other men. I'm not saying you can't have that. As godly Christian men, I hope you do have other men who are good, godly friends with you. So you can have those friendships, but those friendships, dear men, dear husbands, must never replace the husband-wife relationship which God has established for your good. And by extrapolation, of course, women may have women, women who are wives, they may have other women as close friends, but dear wife, dear wives, your friendships with other women should never, never supplant the primary friendship which you should have with your husband. So husbands... Be honest before God, sitting where you are this night. Who is your best friend on earth? I'm not talking about the Lord. He should be your number one. (laughs) Husbands, who is your best friend on earth? It should have immediately come to your mind and heart. My best friend is my dear wife. My dear Julie, Julie Smith in New Jersey, is my best friend. So, dear husbands, do you ever get frustrated or annoyed when your wife does not think or respond like a man? My wife and I talk about this. I say to her, honey, I'm still trying to follow where in the world you're going with this train of thought here. (laughs) You know, you're saying all these things and I feel like I'm, I don't, I'm on Mars. I have no idea what you're talking about. And she says to me, Jeff, if you would just be quiet and just continue to listen. And of course I said to her, well, you know, a man doesn't, speak the way you speak. You know, we can joke about that with wholesome laughter. And I, I, I show you that because my wife and I try to, we try to understand one another. 
But you see, it's wrong, it's sinful for the husband to get annoyed with his wife because she doesn't think like a man, because she doesn't speak like a man, because she doesn't respond like a man. You didn't marry a man, and you shouldn't marry a man. God did not create another man to be the man's helper. He created a woman to be the man's helper. So what did you expect when you got married to your wife? God knows perfectly that the best helper and companion for you is your wife. Not somebody else's wife, not another woman. God knows that the best helper and companion for you, dear husband, is your wife. And you need to rejoice in that reality and thank God for your wife. And of course, you need to love her. But now back in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 22 to 24, we see the marriage covenant established. We've seen, first of all, the need identified. Secondly, the need met. And now thirdly, the marriage covenant established in Genesis 2, 22 to 24. And the rib which Jehovah God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So notice from this passage, first of all, the first marriage covenant in history. In these verses, we see that God brought the newly created woman to the man, verse 22, and God united them in the first marriage covenant. God gave away the bride to the husband. God officiated at the first wedding on earth. A covenant is an oath-bound promise, whether made by God or made by men. And Adam made this covenant with his wife with his declaration in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones, you see, flesh of my flesh. What was Adam saying? He was saying, I am now united to this woman, my wife, and that is permanent. And that was God's intention in creation. The fall has changed that reality. That's another matter. But here in creation, you see, Adam is declaring his commitment to his wife. He leaves his father and mother. Of course, Adam had no father and mother. But what is being proclaimed is that all subsequent marriages, the man will leave his father and mother. The woman, by implication, will leave her father and mother, and they will cleave to one another as husband and wife. So the first marriage covenant in history. Secondly, again, we see God is the author, the designer, the architect, the creator of marriage. And I've used some of these words previously in tonight's message. And I use all of these words now in order to emphasize the fact that from every perspective, God established marriage. Marriage is not man's idea or man's invention. 
You know, sociologists, you take the sociology, well, I hope you don't have to. hope you don't have to take a sociology course in university. But if you do, you'll see that they come up with all of these absurd ideas about where marriage came from. It was not man's idea. Marriage was not something that came into being through the process of time when men and women were evolving and societies decided one day, oh, you know, it would be good that instead of us all living independently, we'll have a man and a woman come together and we'll have what we call marriage. No. God is the creator of marriage. Marriage was originally designed by God to be permanent, not temporary. And a third lesson here, marriage is a God-ordained foundational building block for society. From marriages, societies and nations are formed. And when marriages crumble, families, societies and nations crumble. And that reality can be seen in our day. And that reality can be seen in biblical history and extra-biblical history. Consider Sodom in the days of Lot. Marriage was crumbling or had crumbled. And what did we have? A horrible, sinful society. Consider Israel in the days of the judges in the Bible. You have the same reality. Consider the consequences of King David's adultery. David never thought, when I have sexual relations with this woman Bathsheba, he never thought, he should have thought, he should have thought way before Bathsheba was invited to his palace, but he never thought that that sin, which he did in secret, He never thought that that would lead to such destruction and confusion and the crumbling of the empire and the destruction of the whole family unit, generally speaking. In Psalm 11, verse 3, we read, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Dear brethren, you should be earnestly pleading with God Lord God, send forth your Holy Spirit through the gospel preaching of the word, through our gospel sharing with others. Come by your spirit through the gospel, through the word to save sinners and to establish godly marriages in South Africa. Godly marriages are the foundation for a stable society. We need to proclaim these truths. We need to instruct Christians how to live holy lives within their marriages. But a fourth lesson, marriage was ordained by God for one man and one woman. Again, it should be obvious, but not in our day. Marriage is not one man with multiple wives as many Muslims practice. It is not one man with another man. It's not one woman with another woman, as the homosexuals practice. Bigamy, polygamy, homosexuality, adultery, 
All are excluded and prohibited by God in his institution of marriage at creation for one man with one woman joined in marriage. And furthermore, all other sins which violate the marriage covenant, such as incest, fornication, cohabiting, are clearly condemned by God, even in this creation ordinance, as well as many other scriptures, such such as Genesis 19, Exodus 20, Leviticus 20, Romans chapter 1, John chapter 4. So marriage was ordained by God for one man with one woman. And you should not allow the culture and society of South Africa, and I should not in America, allow all of the pressures. Well, you're just a homophobe. You're just a a male uh, chauvinist. You're a misogynist. Don't be intimidated by the persecution of the world. Ask God for his grace and for the grace of love because these folks that say such things about Christians and our view of marriage, they are sinners who need Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I've met many, Paul's words to the Corinthians, do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor idolaters nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a brief paraphrase of that. And then what else did Paul write in that passage? And such were some of you. In the church in Corinth, Greece, there were sinners who were homosexuals, saved out of their homosexuality, transformed by the grace and power of Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, There were former lesbians. There were former adulterers, former fornicators. And so if anyone here is presently guilty of any of those sins, you need to understand that Jesus Christ is alive. He's not dead in a tomb in Palestine. And Jesus Christ is able and willing to save the vilest of sinners. And he does. And you can be forgiven for your sins, cleansed in the blood of Christ. You must turn away from your sins and you must cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy, forgiveness, cleansing. And he will do that. But a fifth lesson here, since God, the creator of marriage, is holy and good. Marriage is holy and good. And thus the sanctity of marriage must be preserved and cultivated. And therefore, husbands and wives here tonight, you must not permit any sin, any practice, anything, or anyone to defile, corrupt, weaken, or damage the sanctity of your marriage relationship. You understand, I know you do. You must not allow any sin, any practice, anything, anyone to defile or corrupt or weaken or damage the sanctity of your marriage. 
So what is an example of a sin that does that? I'm not going to do it, but if I asked you to raise your hand and give some suggestions, I'm sure you would give very valid suggestions, but you might not think of the one that I have at the top of my list. Lying. Lying in a marriage must never be. Lying to your husband, lying to your wife, undermines and destroys trust within a marriage. Your marriage is to be holy. Do not lie one to another. Speak the truth in love as husbands and wives. An unforgiving disposition and heart. Your wife sins against you and you are not going to forgive her. She has sinned against you clearly. She's done it again and again and again in the exact same way, the exact same area, and you are fed up with it and you say, she's asking for forgiveness. She doesn't really mean it. She's done it again. She's been insubmissive in this area again. And internally you say, I'm not going to forgive her. That is wicked. And it destroys a marriage. You need to remember, dear husbands and dear wives, you need to remind yourself of the mountains of sin in your heart and life as a Christian that God and Jesus Christ continually freely forgives you. When you remember how much God and Christ daily forgives you for all of your sins, it is not hard to forgive your wife when she sins against you as a husband again. Have you not sinned in the same way again and again and again against God? And yet in Christ, when you confess and repent, he forgives you. You must not have an unforgiving disposition and heart toward your wife or toward your husband. Do not harbor in your heart ill will or bitterness or lovelessness toward your spouse. Bitterness in the heart is a root. It's a root that takes deep root in the heart and it defiles the whole person. The writer to the Hebrews tells us about bitterness. Do not permit bitterness, dear husband, dear wife, to begin to take root in your heart Deal with whatever is causing the bitterness. Deal with it before God through Christ. Deal with it with your husband or your wife. Do not allow bitterness to defile your marriage. Viewing pornography. This phone, this is my phone here. The phone itself is not sin. The physical device, the phone, is not evil. But you all know that through the internet, on the phone, or on the computer, pornography is there. 
All manner of sexual uncleanness is there. That destroys the individual and it destroys marriages. And if there's any man here who is battling with viewing pornography, you should seek out one of your pastors, ASAP, as soon as possible, because that will destroy you and destroy your marriage. Work. Work can destroy a marriage. Work can become the man's, the husband's idol. Discontentment with your situation in life. Barrenness. If a wife and her husband are barren, they have no children. They've tried, but no children. If you do not respond to that sovereign reality in your marriage, you can end up in a divorce. So you need to be on guard and aware of these realities. Your parents can unwittingly interfere in your marriage. Your parents may be godly Christians, or they may be not Christians. But in either case, even godly Christian parents can innocently, inadvertently interfere in your marriage. And this can create problems. Your first allegiance is to Christ. And under Christ, you are to be loyal to each other as husband and wife. You are to leave father and mother and cleave to one another. Do not permit parents to destroy your marriage. Don't permit your children, especially when your children become teenagers. Jesus said very clearly, he who loves father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter, more than me is not worthy of me. Do not, dear Christian parents, let your children destroy your marriage by you giving loyalty to them over your own spouse. So there are many other ways in which we can destroy the sanctity of marriage, but we're not to do that. But a sixth lesson, because God created marriage to be holy and good, we must think and speak honorably of marriage and not demean marriage in the slightest. At times I've heard sincere Christians speak in joking words about marriage in a way that demeans marriage or demeans the husband or demeans the wife. And this is not good. This is not right. Dear Christians, don't do that. You know, I'll give you an example. I've heard, again, true Christians trying to be funny. And they say things like this. And please don't laugh. Please don't laugh because it's not funny. Well, we, we know who really wears the pants in that household. Meaning that the wife is ruling the husband and the husband's not ruling the wife. Or comments like this, well, you know, men are just animals. Those are sinful statements, even if they're meant in a joking way. We shouldn't do that. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying as the need may be, and that it may give grace to them that hear. Let marriage be had in honor among all, Hebrews 13, 4. 
And that word honor there in Hebrews 13.4 means you're to regard marriage as of a great price, precious, esteemed. And it's the exact same Greek word that is used by Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 19 when he says you have been redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot, even the blood of Christ. Precious blood, that word precious, it's the same word in Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be had in honor among all. You see how highly we are to regard marriage. The same word describes the blood of Christ. But a seventh lesson, and I'm near my close. The state of celibacy was not God's purpose when he created man. To view celibacy as a higher, more holy, and superior state for man than marriage, as the Roman Catholic Church still teaches, that is unbiblical, it's wrong. It's a perversion of God's created order. Again, not all men and women will get married, but we're not to view celibacy as a choice, unless it's for specific gospel purposes, with the advice and counsel of other godly men and women, we're not to view celibacy as some higher, better state than the married state. No, that's not God's purpose. Lastly, there is no shame in marriage when there is no sin in marriage. In Genesis 2.25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Shame often comes, not always, not always, but often comes because we have sinned. So we need all the more the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, or unmarried men and women. We need the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer to enable us to not sin. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the whole world. Brethren, men and women, remember that reality, that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses away all of our sins. You can live and have a happy, godly marriage through faith in Jesus Christ. You can. You can know the joys of the married state, but you need Jesus Christ in the center of your marriage. You need Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. You need union with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out to him even this very night, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. He delights to show mercy. Let us remember him in our marriages. So brethren, we'll close now in prayer. And then after I pray, Pastor Layla will come forward. Lord, our God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it is rich 
And whenever we study it, we learn more and more of your truth. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells your people. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that continually cleanses away all of our sins, including the sins in our marriages. And we pray that you would work by your Spirit in all of our hearts and lives, that we in our lives, whether married or not married, would be bright, shining lights here in South Africa, that we would also have opportunity to speak the gospel to others around us, and that when they look at our lives, even married or unmarried, it does not matter, when they look at our lives, may they see, may they see Jesus Christ in us. We cry to you and ask for these mercies in his worthy name. Amen.